Take your Bibles, if you would, and uh, turn to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. Let us listen carefully to what God says to us this morning in His Word. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have, no, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Our Lord, as we come this morning to Your Word, we're just so excited uh, to hear what You have to say to us today. And I pray, Lord, that You would uh, give us ears to hear these things. Uh, Lord, we know that we live in times of, of great weariness. Lord, uh, times of great discouragement. Uh, we oftentimes feel hard-pressed from all different directions. And Lord, what we need is You. What we need is, is not just some teaching to make our life better. But we need You, O oh God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so I pray uh, that You would be with us today. And teach and instruct us, encourage us, Lord. Turn our hearts to you and, and to rest in, in who you are and what you share with us today. We pray in your name. Amen. More and more prevalent today is the idea, and you've maybe heard people say these things, that, you know, I really can't take care of you or minister to you until I first take care of myself. And, and then you'll hear people oftentimes give an illustration, maybe something like this, about being on an airplane and, and how the, the steward, the stewardess, stands up front and says, you know, if, if the plane loses uh, pressure, there will be masks that fall down from, this, uh, from the ceiling. And put your mask on first before you put the other person's mask on. And obviously because if you don't, then you may pass out and then you obviously can't help the other person. And, uh, you know, that, that's a very common illustration. And as good as this philosophy sounds, uh, it's not biblical. You know, the idea that you have to put yourself first before you can minister to others is not from Scripture, but actually from the world. It works well on airplanes, but it's really not what life is about, as God tells us in His Word. But this doesn't mean, though, that the Scripture is silent on the idea of examining our lives and, and uh, talking about how we are to live as Christians and what impact our faith is to have upon ourselves, not just on our relationship with others, but on ourselves as well. If you would, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy 4, verse 15. And Paul is writing to this young pastor who's seeking to, to pastor this church. 
and, and he's uh, writing to him God's word. And listen what he tells this young pastor. He says, practice these things. Now, the things that he's talking about are things that he had talked about earlier in the chapter. Love, uh, faith, uh, purity, uh, public reading of the scriptures, teaching the word of God. He goes, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that you may see your pro so that, that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself, that is on your life, the way you live, and on the teaching, that is your, your doctrine. Uh, persist in this, uh, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, Paul is not telling Timothy, first of all, make sure your felt needs are met before you minister to others. Instead, he's really saying, be an example to your flock. Be someone who, who walks in their faith, who lives out their faith. And as, as you do so, um, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Well, likewise, the writer of Hebrews is doing the same thing in our text today, in Hebrews 13, 4 through 6. Um, he's, he is saying to them that our faith, true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, not only manifests itself in terms of how we relate to others, which we talked about last week, in terms of loving others and what that love looks like, but he also says it has an impact on our own lives as well. Now, I think it's interesting, as we look at our text today, I want us to remember that the author of Hebrews could have written about just almost an endless number of topics, you know, in terms of how our faith is to impact our life. Maybe he could have talked about how we should raise our children, or maybe he would talk about, you know, how we should function at work, but he doesn't. What's interesting is, is the two topics that he talks about this morning, both sex and money. Sex and money. Uh, now, talking about relevant for today, there's, there's prob these are probably the two biggest idols that people struggle with in our culture today. And these are the things that oftentimes challenge our loyalty to Christ. Even as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be challenged and tempted by these things. And so I want us this morning to consider the things that the author writes to these New Testament Christians. So he talks, first of all, about marriage and sexual purity in verse 4. He said, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Now, brothers and sisters, this is definitely a word for our day, as marriage is not held in honor. Marriage and sexuality are under attack in, in a vast number of ways in our culture today. First of all, just the number of divorces that are taking place themselves is, is an attack. Uh, kids, did you know that uh, to grow up in a home with both parents like you have, you are in the minority of kids in America today? Uh, you may not realize what a blessing the Lord has given you to put you in a Christian home where mom and dad both are there and teaching you about the Lord Jesus Christ. But other attacks that we see is not only divorce, but also unfaithfulness in marriage. And that can come in a whole lot of different forms. You know, one form that sort of surprises me that I hear about more often than I really hate to admit, but is maybe someone who's perusing Facebook or some other social media, and they run across an old boyfriend or girlfriend from college or high school, 
and they begin to talk and next thing you know they hook up and, and an affair has started and so there's that unfaithfulness of marriage Another attack in our day is just the way our culture wants to advocate all the different versions of marriage. You know, according to our culture, marriage is no longer between one man and one woman forever. You know, and it's been redefined and, and changed. So, so marriage is not inherently held in honor in the world that we live. You have to choose, uh, actively choose to do so. And, and so we need to listen to this because God cares a lot about sex and marriage and, and we can't emphasize this enough uh, one because the Bible tells us this that's what we read in our text today and I could take you to a lot of other texts that talk entire books that talk about this as well but two because culture is telling you otherwise and parents you need to hear this you need to hear this I, I am appalled in some ways at the number of, of um, teenage Christians that I hear that as they, you know, they've grown up in the church and they've heard God's word taught and I know their parents have instructed them and yet they're still picking up the messages of the world and I hear it in their language and I hear it in the questions. Now, why is it wrong to have sex outside of marriage? You know, questions like that, that, that they're not getting it. And so parents, this is something we need to give attention to, something we need to make a matter of prayer. Because, you know, even, even in our culture, those that might believe in God would, you know, might say, well, you know, doesn't God have bigger issues to deal with? I mean, isn't he more concerned about the suffering in the world? Does he really care what goes on in your household or what, what goes on in your bedroom? You know, and, and so the culture is beginning to, to shame you if you believe what the, the Bible says. And one day, and you can mark my words, I believe that we will suffer the consequences of believing in the Scriptures. You know, I believe that one day you're going to be overlooked for a job or a promotion simply because you're a Christian. Or there'll be uh, financial punishment, you know, because you, you believe in marriage or, or something like that. But anyway, God cares about marriage and sex. And if I could just give you one more scripture, uh, Jesus in speaking about this in Matthew 19. Matthew 19, 4, uh, Jesus is quoting from the book of Genesis. And he's talking about marriage and he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, why does God care so much about marriage and, and intimacy in marriage? Well, you could also maybe ask it this way. On the flip side, the other question that goes along with that is, why is our culture so adamant in attacking the biblical truth on marriage and sexuality? Brothers and sisters, I would suggest to you that it's not an accident that we are seeing a sexual enlightenment in our culture today. That is an attack of Satan uh, against God. Uh, it is very pointed, that particular topic, because there's a lot at stake here. Now, what is, what is at stake? Well, I'll just suggest a few things. One, broken homes and broken families that come when we ignore what God says about marriage and sexuality. Uh, depression, uh, relational brokenness, and, and isolation. And the list goes on and on and on. 
Uh, I, you know, it's interesting as an elder of a church that is involved in counseling, has been involved in church discipline and various churches and stuff. The the high majority of cases that elders deal with in the church oftentimes revolve around marriage and sexuality and money. Those are oftentimes uh, the the very situations that you address. So. There's much at stake here when we uh, ignore God's plan for our lives. But, but there's, a, there's another reason, and this is the most important reason, and we need to hear this and be reminded of this, that marriage is not an end in itself, but a picture of something bigger and greater. The marriage relationship between one man and one woman is a picture of Christ's covenant relationship with His redeemed people. Look, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul is writing to the church, and, and he quotes from Genesis 1 again. He goes, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We call that the you know, leave and cleave um, principle. But then he goes on, and he goes, This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and to the church. In other words, the marriages that we have, brothers and sisters, are to be a picture to the world of God's relationship with His people. Therefore, honoring marriage and staying married is not mainly about being or staying in love. It really has nothing to do with that. It's about keeping covenant. It's about keeping covenant that we make on that day when we stand before Christ and, and, and His church and the minister asks the vows and we make those vows before God and others as our witness. And we stay married because of the horrible picture divorce provides of Christ's relationship with His bride. You know, our marriage portrays something about Jesus and the way that Jesus relates to His people. One way we proclaim the gospel to a lost world is by honoring marriage and therefore showing the world what the love of Christ looks like in everyday relationships with spouses. Because brothers and sisters, when we get married, you're putting two sinners in the same household. And sparks can fly when that happens, okay? And there's a lot of opportunity for love, not as the world defines it, but as Christ defines it. As the Bible talks about it in 1 Corinthians 13, where it's an act of the will. It's a choice that we make. And they see that, that our God is a God who loves us even when we are unlovable. And since marriage is such a, a vital witness to a lost and dying world and, and to an often confused church, marriage must be highly esteemed and fiercely protected. And, and that's one of the reasons why Satan has been attacking the institution of marriage for years and, and to tempt Christians to undervalue and to not honor marriage. And, and there's many ways that we dishonor marriage, and we may not even realize it. One, one of the ways is when we view celibacy or singleness as more spiritual. Now, Paul does talk about that in 1 Corinthians 7, about those who are single are not bound by worldly cares. They do have more freedom when it comes. They can pick up and go on a missions trip or... You know, they, there are just certain freedoms that they have, that those that are married, you know, maybe they have other responsibilities that those who are single don't. But that doesn't mean that singleness is more important. There's a place for both, those who are married and those who are single. Uh, 
We also dishonor marriage when we redefine it to allow same-sex couples to marry. We also dishonor marriage when we engage in no-fault divorce, or, or when believers marry non-believers, or when we engage in sexual activities outside the bounds of marriage, or with others to whom we're not married to. All of those are ways that we dishonor the Lord in marriage. But instead of engaging these practices and holding these opinions, we are, as, as the writer says here, to honor marriage. Now it's interesting that in the Greek, that word honor is the very first word of the sentence, which to any Greek reader would tell them, this is the most important thing in this sentence. I want you to see that. Honor is what you're to do in regards to marriage. And, and that word that's translated honor is used in other places to speak of one's attitude towards something and seeing it as of great worth. As a matter of fact, Peter uses it in 1 Peter 1.19 where he, he, he speaks of the precious blood of Jesus. The precious blood of Jesus. And that's, that's how we're to view marriage as precious uh, in God's sight. And so we must all check our attitudes from time to time to make sure that we honor the very institution in general, but even our own marriages in particular, and that we are teaching our children and our grandchildren the importance of marriage as God's designed it. But, but we look at our text, um, as, as we do, one of the most important ways that we see that we honor marriage is through sexual intimacy with our spouse. Um, the author says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Of course, the marriage bed is a euphemism for sexual activity within marriage. And we are to enjoy sexual relations with our spouse in a biblical and a loving way. Uh, sex is, I think, too often a taboo subject in the church. And I thought it's interesting, of all places, uh, the, the New Dictionary of Theology, okay? Listen to this. The New Dictionary of Theology states that the history of the church betrays a far less positive attitude to sexuality than the Bible's. In other words, what they're saying is, is if you look back through church history, church history has a less of a positive attitude about sexuality than what the, actually the Bible uh, lays out. Uh, multiple Proverbs and most of the Song of Solomon proclaims the joys of, of in sexual intimacy in marriage. Uh, such joy is a glorious gift from God who smiles upon such activity between a married man and a woman. And I think that oftentimes people maybe wrestle in that intimacy, at least that's I think what my wife and I see as we do counseling with others, because it's been such a taboo subject, we don't talk about it that much. And so people don't really always understand the joy and the blessing that the Lord has given to us in that, and oftentimes uh, struggle with perversions of what God had designed. Uh, unfortunately, much like our own culture and biblical cultures, whether that be Rome or Corinth or Ephesus, wherever it might be, they didn't understand how Christians could stay content with a single sexual partner for life. That didn't make sense to them. And in our culture, it's, it's sort of seen as, as the same way. But that is God's design to show His intimate relationship with His people and the joy and the pleasure that results. It's not that we have some kind of sexual relationship with God, but there is that intimacy, it reflects that intimacy that we have with Him. And, and the reason that marriage is to be held in honor and, and the marriage bed kept undefiled is, as we see in verse 4, because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. 
that, that term sexually immoral is, is a generalized term for sexual relations outside of marriage. Okay, it's those things that might be done outside of marriage. The word is pornos, okay? It means fornicator, sexually immoral person, prostitute chaser. That's the idea behind that word. And, and so you can guess that's where we get our word pornography, you know, and all that goes along with that. The other term, adulterous, refers specifically to those who are unfaithful in their marriage. So that outside of the marriage, that within the marriage. Uh, these two terms basically cover the wide spectrum of possible sexual sins. And the author is, warns us that God is going to judge such individuals, including unrepentant Christians who mistakenly believe that they are redeemed from such judgment of their sin. And, and you would hate to think that that is the case, but it is amazing how many people I have met who boldly profess that they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and they're living with their girlfriend, they're shacking up with their girlfriend, or whatever it might be. And they just there's just a total disconnect there that the profession that they make with their lips about trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and their actions are actually counter to one another. One professes the gospel, one uh, attacks and denies the gospel. But brothers and sisters, the Bible is very clear about this. And I want to take time this morning to, to just remind us uh, how much the Bible addresses this and what it has to say. It has very strong words, which is very important for us in our culture today. Uh, turn, if you would, with me to 1 Corinthians 6. I, I would love for you to turn with these with me to, to read through these. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Paul is writing to a church... Yeah, that was very sexually prolific. Temple prostitution was a common practice in the culture. And so even those you know, that were in the church you know, either engaged in it before or they were tempted even by the possibility, even as Christians. And so Paul writes to them and he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, adulterers, idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. He tells them that, that those who practice sexual immorality will not. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Paul's... Now writing to the church at, at Ephesus, we're here again. Uh, sexuality was very much a part of that culture, much like our own. He says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verse 3. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, 
that no one transgress that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. And then finally, turn to Revelation 21, verse 8. Revelation 21, verse 8. God gives John this revelation. He says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You see the wrath of God that is coming upon those who are sexually immoral and adulterers is, is that lake of fire, that second death. All who die in unrepentant adultery or sexual activity outside of marriage are under God's wrath. And, and they'll suffer the ultimate judgment no matter what they claim about their salvation experience in the past. That's why the Bible, Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6.18, it says, Flee from sexual immorality. Because, it, brothers and sisters, it, it has so many consequences that I think we don't even realize in and I, I'm not even going to list all of them, but just a few. It, it damages our body, our minds, our, our relationships, our society, the church. It affects us, the church. Even as I said earlier, it impacts the gospel as, as we give ourselves to these very things. Now, I will tell you this. This is a very unpopular thing to say in our world today. Because Satan is attacking God's creation fiercely through our, our modern sexual enlightenment. And as Christians, as I said, we, we may go to jail one day for, for holding these things and what God says in His Word. And that's okay. And it may even be necessary, brothers and sisters. But we must speak the truth in love for those around us. Even for those that do not want to hear it. Because God will judge sexual immorality. But I also want us to understand that we must take these things to heart as well for our own lives and our own marriage and, and where, where we are. It's not just a message to be preached to others, but it is actually a message that is written to us as the church. Now, I, I do want to just make a little parenthesis here, if I could, and, and, and just help you to understand that that doesn't mean that those maybe that are here today who have been... <coughs> In sexual brokenness. Maybe you've been abused uh, when you were younger or in the past sexually. Um, or, or maybe you struggle with, with sexual sin in the present. You know, and the key word there being struggle. You know, maybe you're struggling with that. It doesn't mean that in Christ that you can't be forgiven. That's not what he's saying. I don't, I don't want you to hear in this that everyone who has sinned sexually receives nothing but judgment from God. Don't hear that, okay? The, the message of the gospel is, is that if you own your sin, if you, if you confess that sin, if you admit that sin, if you repent, you turn away from that sin, seek to put to death your sin, and you trust in Jesus, there is forgiveness and there is grace. This passage is speaking to the person who knows what God has designed, and they may even say, yeah, I believe that, that God has 
said that about sexuality, but they go ahead and they do what they want to do sexually anyway and totally ignore the Lord. The person that he's talking about here is those who defy God directly. And it is those people who will be judged. And so, brothers and sisters, it is so important that we guard our own marriages and our own sexuality. The second thing I want us to see is he talks about money. He talks about contentment. Verses uh, 5 and 6. Verse 5 says, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. It's interesting, if you do a study on uh, different topics of the Bible, the most common topic in the Bible has to do with money. Believe it or not, it, it talks about money. And part of that is, it makes sense, because we wrestle with money. Now, money itself is neither here nor there, neither good nor evil, but he's addressing here actually the love of money. And, and Paul puts it this way, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you would. We're actually going to look at a couple of passages in 1 Timothy 6, so, so stay there when we get there. But Paul is writing once again to this young pastor, uh, instructing him on how to care for the church. And he says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So you see that this love of money is, is it's not just the love of money that's the problem, but it's, it's a root of all different kinds of evils. And there are those who have gone down that path and, and as a result, they have wandered away from the faith. And so it's a very serious thing. And, and the reason is, is that the love of money is one of the most common forms of covetousness, of, of that sense of greed, of wanting more, of wanting what others have. And, and, you know, God has warned His people all the way since the Ten Commandments, you know, against this danger. And, and partly the reason why there could be that love of money is because money can be used to secure so many other things that we want. I mean, if you think about it, um, money can give us lots of different things. Loving money is lusting after material riches, whatever the form. Now, um, look, if you would, again, at 1 Peter chapter 6, only back up to verse 9. And as you do that, um, you may think that this is a sin that only comes to the rich. Um, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And so you might look at that and say, well, that's something that rich people wrestle with. Well, it is true that some who are rich do trust in their riches, and, and they love what their money gives to them, whether that be power, whether that be prestige, whether that be comfort, they do appreciate that. But it's not just the rich that struggle with, with the love of money. Others demonstrate that love of money by uh, just seeking to acquire it. Do you ever, have you ever met somebody who they live for the thrill of adding money to their bank account? You know, they don't really have anything specific they're going to spend it on. They just like to see that number go up and up and up and up. And it just sort of gives them a rush to, to get more money. Um, others uh, love money by hoarding it. Uh, misers aren't so interested in increasing their possessions as much as hanging on to their possessions. There's just a sense of security there that can come from, from what they think money can give to them. 
Um, still others are more interested in the things that they can buy. They may not be wealthy, but they have a fair amount of toys. You probably know what I'm talking about. They, they have that motorcycle and that really cool pickup truck. And you know, the house that they got is bigger than the one that they had before. And they can't wait till they get that house so that they can put in that really neat swimming pool. And they just have all these toys that just keep adding and adding and adding and adding. Uh, there's that sense of love of money. But then there are others who love money who have absolutely no money. Did you realize that? That you can have the love of money and really not have money. And you probably know people like this, that they're really looking for sort of a rags to riches type of story. That's why they buy that lottery ticket. They're just hoping that one day they'll go in and they'll hear that they struck it big and then therefore they'll have all the money that they have. But no matter what the expression of love of money is that, that people have, the common reality is that what people are doing is, is they're putting their trust in riches rather in the living God. That's the problem with the love of money. You're putting your, your, your hope in something um, that is of this world and that will pass away. 1 Timothy chapter 6, I hope you're still there. Look at verse 17. Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to be proud, okay? Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You see, he says that riches are going to pass away. They are uncertain. They can't give us what we want. Uh, Matthew 6 talks about how the riches on this earth can be taken away. They can rust. They can be stolen. You know, there's all kinds of things that can happen. But therefore, we are to put our riches in heaven. But with God, God gives us all we need. Look back at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. At the very end, he says, For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In other words... There, there are no instances or circumstances or events that would ever lead God to abandon His own. Riches are, are fleeting. They will pass away. They will let us down. God will never do that. Let me read from Proverbs 11:28 that said, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Now, it's, it's not wrong... Uh, to earn or to have wealth. I mean, look at Abraham, Job, uh, Solomon. You know, just to name a few of very wealthy men in the Bible. But it's that love of money, that trusting in the money, what it can do for us that's a root of all kinds of evil. And you've got to understand where these Christians are coming from. They have endured persecution um, from without because of their faith. Uh, some have been in prison. Some have been mistreated. And it might look like to some of these believers that God has forsaken them. That, that God has not given them what they need. And so, you know, and if that's the case, then perhaps and what they were seeking to do is to begin to accumulate material possessions and those things that they feel like may give them some sense of security. But the writer here is writing to his congregation and say, Brothers and sisters, God has not left you. God has not left you. He, he loves you. As a matter of fact, um, the author quotes Psalm 118, verse 6, that we read here in verse 6 of Hebrews 13. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You see, it is when we realize that the Lord is our helper 
that we can rest in Him and know that uh, what we have from God is both good and it's enough. It is sufficient. Now, we live in a culture, brothers and sisters, that is the exact opposite of that. And you may know that. You may not. We've, we're just in it so much that we don't realize how much things are coming at us. But the very idea of consumerism is that you need to have more. If you don't keep buying, if you don't keep acquiring more, if you don't get better, then that doesn't help our economy. And so consumerism is built on that idea that people will just want more and more and more and more. But contentment is the condition of being pleased with your situation and not hoping for, for change or improvement. You're fine where you're at. It's, it's not a sense of apathy, and it's not that you don't have desires, but if, 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 if you do have desires for more, it is a sense of taking that to the Lord and then being satisfied with His answer as to whether you need to have that or not. It's a sense of resting in Him. It is a sense of, of trusting in Him. Jeremiah Burroughs said that contentment has been called one of the purest signs of true worship. You hear that? That contentment is one of the purest signs of true worship. Now, you're all familiar with his famous work, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He says this in that book. He goes, You worship God more by contentment than when you come to hear a sermon or you spend a half hour or an hour in prayer or, or when you come to receive a sacrament. All these things, whether that's preaching, whether that's prayer, whether that's participating in the sacrament, these are only external acts of worship. Okay? But listen, he says, but contentment, contentment, is the soul's worship. To subject itself to God and being pleased with what God does. There's a sense in which contentment shows that we're at rest with the Lord. And that is true worship. Saying, God, I can trust you. I don't have to hunger for more things to be fulfilled or to be satisfied. And so contentment is that inner assurance that God does all things well and is concerned enough with your circumstances to provide you with what he thinks you need at the moment. He's not going to give you everything you want, but he's going to give you what you need. And so contentment is, is sort of the opposite of grumbling about our circumstances as though God doesn't love us or, or know what is best for us. But brothers and sisters, sometimes we hold on to things so tightly. And it could be material possessions, it could be a relationship, maybe... Uh, you know, being single and wanting to be married or, or, or maybe it's, to, to, I don't know what it might be, but there's things that we always want. And as a matter of fact, we have turned those desires into demands with God. And when we do that, there's a sense in which that can, we're robbed of that contentment. So to be content implies that God has not and will not provide what we need. It's a lot like the Israelites when they left Egypt and what happened when they didn't get what they wanted. They got hungry, they got, they got thirsty, they began to grumble and complain because the Lord didn't give them what they want. But He did give them everything that they needed. And the way a person treats money, brothers and sisters, is a good test to their faith. As a matter of fact, I heard a person say it's the number one test of your faith, is, is how you treat money. And maybe that's why the Bible talks more about money 
than anything else because money really reveals where our heart is. It, it proves whether we really believe we're headed to a heavenly city and waiting for us or whether we're living more for the things of this world. Well, brothers and sisters, Satan is tempting us in our culture to have sort of a sense of restlessness. I don't care whether it's in, a, in terms of our marriage, in terms of whether it's uh, uh, the intimacy that we have in marriage, there is just sort of a, a restlessness that we are being tempted with. A restlessness in terms of uh, what we own, the money that we have, the possessions, and those things. But in Christ, as we trust in the Lord, as we rest in Him, there is a sense of peace. Jesus understands, brothers and sisters, our temptations. Jesus was tempted. Satan came to him and offered him all these wonderful things. He actually offered Jesus the ability to become the Messiah only without all the pain. He could become the Messiah only it could be comfortable. Now the reality is Satan's lies are exactly that. They're lies. He would not have been any kind of savior whatsoever. He would have not saved anyone if he would have followed Satan. But as, as we are uh, encountered with the lies of the world about these things, about marriage, about money, uh, let us be reminded that we don't have to give in to these things. That as we place our faith in Jesus Christ, he, he, has, he has endured these temptations so that He could help us to walk steadfast and, and to rest in Him, that we might truly honor marriage, we might truly delight in, in, uh, in sexual intimacy, that we might have a sense of contentment when it comes to our money, uh, what, however much the Lord gives us. Um, God is good, and we need to be reminded of that. I think what Satan is seeking to do is exactly what he did to Adam and Eve in the garden. He, questioned, he, he tempted them to ask, is God good? Can we trust him? Is God somehow withholding something good from me? And in our marriages, and our sexuality, and our money, those are all idols that the world is holding out to us, saying, God has failed you in this. Take uh, the forbidden fruit and eat, and you will be satisfied. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, it's a lie. It's only in Jesus Christ, only as we live out our faith, that we see that sense of contentment in these areas. Let's bow our heads this morning as we meditate on, on God's Word this morning. We thank you, O oh God, this morning for your word that you have given us today. Uh, Lord, There we may not walk away with a lot more that we have learned, but sometimes, God, our problem's not in just what we know fact-wise, but it, in, in how we live, um, Lord, how, how we walk in faith. And Lord, I just, just pray for our body today. 
And God, you would help us to, to heed these things. And I particularly want to remember those, Lord, that, that are struggling here today, maybe in these areas. Maybe you have revealed to them ways in which they are not walking according to your word. Uh, but Lord, I pray for uh, the encouragement of your Holy Spirit, that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ, that all we have to do is, is to turn to you and to rest in you. Lord, give us an ever-increasing sense of contentment and joy in the things that, that you have given to us. And Lord, let us be bold, uh, not only to live that out in our lives, but also, Lord, to share the hope with others as well. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.